0: Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Thank you for downloading. My name is Renee Manderville, a project manager at the Indian Ocean World Center, or IOWC, at McGill University. I'm joined by Drs. Archisman Chowdhury and Philip Gooding, both postdoctoral fellows at the IOWC.
2: Hello, Renee. Thank
0: you for having me here again. Oh, yeah, and thank you for having me as well.
1: Thank you so much for joining us once again, guys. Uh, so you will hear more from them later on, but our guest today is Professor Michael Christopher Lowe, an Assistant Professor of History at the Iowa State University and currently a Senior Humanities Research Fellow for the Study of the Arab World at NYU Abu Dhabi. Professor Lowe earned his PhD in history from Columbia University in 2015. He specializes in late Ottoman, modern Middle Eastern, Indian Ocean, and environmental history, and he has published peer-reviewed journal articles in Comparative Studies in Society and History, Environment and History, Journal of the Ottoman and Turkish Studies Association, among other journals. He is also a collaborator and partner scholar with Gwen Campbell and the rest of us at the IOWC on our Appraising Risk project. Check out our website to find more on this project and other podcasts. So today, Professor Lowe is with us to discuss his recently published book with Columbia University Press entitled Imperial Mecca, Ottoman Arabia and the Indian Ocean Hajj. So without further ado, Professor Lowe, it is a pleasure to record this podcast with you today. and Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
1: So just to start off, please, could you just tell me a bit more about your book? Uh, It is set mostly in the second half of the 19th century on the edge of the Ottoman Empire at the time of increased European, especially British, uh, interference with the Northwestern Indian Ocean world. Uh, it is also set to the backdrop of technological change, especially with the arrival of the steamship, and during a period of frequent cholera outbreaks between India, the Middle East, the Mediterranean, and Europe. So how do these political, technological, and environmental factors coalesce in your book?
3: Well, the backstory, I think, of this book is, is kind of a long and winding path uh, in terms of Uh, how I became interested in these overlapping geographies. Um, Back now nearly 15 years ago, I think when I started out as a master's student, I thought that I wanted to do something with British India. Um, And very quickly, uh, when I was at Georgia State, uh, back, you know, around 2005, I uh, encountered an Egypt specialist, uh, Don Reed, and we did a sort of readings course, a comparative course on uh, Egypt, the Middle East, uh, and and India. And in that course, I began to sort of uh, find some of the materials uh, that sort of ultimately sparked my interest uh, in this topic. And it was sort of a long journey from sort of thinking that I was going to do something with India, maybe the Indian Ocean to learning Arabic, Persian, uh, then studying Turkish and Ottoman Turkish and sort of accumulating different interests uh, as the project grew um, and sort of, uh, you know, moving through different uh, sort of research homes. Uh, I studied Arabic in Yemen. Uh, which kind of, I think, for a a Middle East specialist set my interests on a little bit more Indian Ocean trajectory before ultimately ending up uh, doing most of the research uh, in Istanbul uh, at the Ottoman Archives uh, over the last 10 years or so. Now, when I started this project, really the only thing out there on this topic uh, was a a 1980s uh, article Uh, by William Roth uh, called Sanitation and Security. And this is a set of ideas about the Hajj that got picked up again, kind of over and over again in the last decade or so as this topic became really more and more in vogue. I mean, I think the sort of interest in the Hajj uh, and pilgrimage is very much an artifact uh, of the sort of explosion of world, global, international, transregional histories, right? So it's a sort of a way that people could get at those kinds of geographies. But so in the last 10 years or so, um, we've seen books, John Slight's work on the British Empire and the Hajj, a wonderful book, uh, Eric Tagliacozzo's work on Southeast Asia and pilgrimage, Eileen Kane's work uh, on uh, Imperial Russia and, and Hajj. And to greater and lesser extents, so I think all of these scholars wrestle with this sanitation and security paradigm that William Roth kind of laid out there. And I think if you read any of the colonial records on pilgrimage, you you immediately, this jumps out at you, that European uh, colonial officials, consular officials felt very threatened by the uh, kind of uh, unwieldy nature of all of these uh bodies moving in different directions the sort of epidemiological threats their potential you know say indians to go to mecca or medina and come in contact with uh various uh, islamic influences radicalizing pan-islamic influences that they found threatening to the colonial order so that was sort of the basic framing of this topic right Uh, was that uh this was a threat to europe and, and colonialism um And as I became sort of more interested in thinking about this as uh, an Ottoman imperial question, uh, from my perspective, the real victim in the story uh, is the Ottoman Empire. It's not the colonial empires, right? Uh, Obviously, Europe, the Dutch, the British, the French, the Russians are all encroaching, uh, sort of following their colonial subjects as they make their way to Mecca uh, on Hajj. And so this sort of interest in surveillance, I believe is well-placed in some respects, but also misses part of the story. So the way that I was sort of seeing uh, this, this story told was sort of from the outside in, right? All following the pilgrims from various colonial territories uh, to Mecca in the Hejaz. And what I wanted to do was fill in that sort of donut hole in the middle of the story, right? What I wasn't seeing, I'm seeing lots of colonial sources in European languages, but not the sort of core story of the world's only remaining Muslim power, the Ottoman Empire, and how they were managing the encroachment of new technologies, diseases, environmental questions, not to mention, of course, uh, extraterritoriality of European empires. How were they managing that threat Um, and interacting with uh, colonized Muslim subjects in new ways uh, in the late 19th century. So really, I wanted to recenter this story uh, on a Muslim empire instead of a European Christian empire, right, so uh, some of these other uh, books have done, uh, I think, some novel work in trying to get us to think about the ways in which Europeans saw themselves as ruling, quote unquote, Muslim empires. And that is true, uh, that they saw themselves as uh as uh, sort of presiding over the islamic worlds certainly the british uh, felt this way but the question that my book asks is what about a real muslim empire uh, an authentically muslim empire uh, how are these questions hitting them in ways that are more difficult uh, to handle so at once it's a question of the sort of authenticity and the source base and in another way it's it's directly inspired by some of this really great Uh, and creative work on on the colonial Hajj. One of the other problems that I would sort of highlight here uh, is on the Ottoman side of things. Most of the scholarship on the Hijaz, Mecca, and the Hajj has revolved fairly exclusively when we talk about the late Ottoman Empire, uh, late 19th century, early 20th century, has mostly been about the idea of uh, so-called pan-Islam, right? Uh, Abdul Hamid II's propaganda, uh, outreach, sort of symbolic uh, deployment of the pilgrimage and the holy places um, as a way in some respects to protect uh, his domains against threats from Europe. Um, And certainly the heart of this storyline has been the construction of the famous Hijaz Railway. Um, And all of the uh, financial contributions that poured in from across the colonized Muslim world, in particular from India. And this is certainly an important part of the story and features in the book uh, in its uh, final chapter. Um, But this is one small piece uh, of a much wider story uh, about the modernization of the Hijaz uh, and the Hajj. So one of the things that I wanted to do is kind of to encourage readers to think a little bit more broadly about the ways that colonialism, technology, disease, and the environment all worked to reshape um, both the difficult task of modernization on the Ottoman frontier and the equally difficult task of acting uh, as stewards of the holy places uh, in the midst of European colonialism's uh, arrival throughout the Muslim world. Right. So in in many respects, this period uh, sort of marks a transition from a kind of classical pilgrimage in which the Hajj was solely an affair between, you know, various Muslim states uh, and individual Muslims. And in the 19th century, the Hajj becomes a globalized international question of equal import to Muslims and non-Muslims. Um, and I think that that transition is certainly highlighted by the last year uh, that we've all experienced with COVID-19, right? Once again, the pilgrimage to Mecca became a question of dire uh, uh, public health concern worldwide. And ultimately the pilgrimage was uh, restricted to a quite symbolic, a very uh, a small version of itself this year. Uh, because of COVID-19. But that world of international travel, of passports, of steamship regulations, the all of the sort of border controls that we think of as normal parts of our lives today, their origins uh, really can be traced to this time period and the kinds of threats that states were dealing with, whether epidemiological uh, or ideological, right? So, In Imperial Mecca, I really tried to trace the ways uh, in which this classic uh, set of Ottoman practices of pilgrimage patronage, the older uh, uh, ways of understanding the Hajj, like uh, providing safety on caravan routes, gave way to a much more complex logistical uh, world of managing multiple states, steamship routes, Uh, again, things like passports and borders that really weren't part of the, the older classical Hajj. And also questions of, of things like international law. So for centuries, the Ottoman Empire had ruled Mecca and Medina and the Hijaz as semi-autonomous territories and shared power with uh, the Sharif's of Mecca, uh, sort of uh, princes uh, in the Hijaz. But of course, in the late 19th century, this autonomous rule uh, became less tenable Uh, under European visions of what sovereignty and international law should look like, right? So all of these things are kind of coming together and overlapping uh, all at once. And uh, most of the scholarship that I encountered, um, for example, Soraya Faruqi's work on the early modern uh, Ottoman Hajj, it really didn't sort of give a sense of how this uh, sort of quintessential uh, heartland of the Muslim world changed over time, right? I think that sometimes when we think about pilgrimage, we emphasize the continuity, right? The uh, believer going and performing the same rituals that have been performed century after century. Uh, when in fact, the 19th century shows a quite dramatic transformation in the experience uh, and the ways in which this ritual uh, was carried out. So that's sort of uh, the sort of core concerns uh, really. But to underscore this, just really the internationalized and global nature of the way in which uh, Hodge became and has ever since then uh, continued to be.
1: Oh, thank you so much for that answer, Professor Lowe. Um, And thank you for discussing your book with us. Uh, So just for our listeners who are not aware, even though Professor Lowe Um, has articulated it very well. The Hajj is one of the five pillars of Islam in which there is an annual mass pilgrimage to Mecca in Saudi Arabia. Uh, So for those who are interested in hearing more about the book and about the Hajj, uh, please look at our webpage, our appraising Risk website page, and you will find a link to Professor Lowe's book. Um, So I will now pass over our questioning to one of our other postdoctoral fellows. So I suppose, firstly, Archisman, do you have any questions for Professor Lowe?
2: Uh, thank you, Reni, and thank you, Professor Lo, for this thoughtful discussion. My question is about your sources and your centering of the Ottoman Empire, Ottoman imperialism, as opposed to British imperialism in this story. You make a very convincing argument that the Ottoman sources revise understandings of the history of the Hejaz, which hitherto had been based primarily on British sources. So, I want to know, how did you come about these Ottoman sources? Why had historians not seriously considered these sources before? And in what ways do they challenge histories of the Hajj and of the Hejaz, which have largely been understood through a European imperial framework using
3: British sources? Thank you for this question. Um, I I think that there are a handful of ways to sort of think about why these particular questions and or sources hadn't been deployed uh, in the past. Now, I should uh, point out that uh, there has been work done on the Ottoman hijaz before, uh, not much, uh, unfortunately, uh, but a really fine scholar uh, who his prime sort of was in the in, uh, 1980s and 1990s, William Oxenwald, uh, I believe his, his uh, Ottoman history of Hejaz, uh was 1984, really fine scholarship. And I couldn't have done this project really without his work as, as kind of a, a guide. Uh, to really sort of think through uh, some of the main characters here. And I should also point out that uh, more recently uh, Ulrike Freitag uh, in Berlin has written a history of a, a more localized uh, sort of Arab centric history of jiddah. Very fine scholarship uh, there as well. So it's not as if uh, a few of us have been thinking about these things to, to be sure, um, but not the same kind of attention uh, that seems to have swirled really in the last 10 or 15 years around the colonial hajj. And as I said before, I think that that's really an artifact of the sort of, again, trans-regionalization of many of our fields. So pilgrimage really fits into that moment of global history and world history sort of stepping onto center stage. Um, but of course, it creates its own um, lacunae, right? It, it, its own uh, sort of points that are, are, are lacking and missing, right? To do these bigger, uh, more trans-regional histories. Um, and so that was really sort of where I wanted to try and uh, fill in. The other thing that I would say about the sort of Ottoman field um, is there's a relatively few number of us working on each sort of provincial uh, frontier piece of the empire, right? Um, So a handful working on say uh, Yemen or Hejaz or Iraq. And so the density of these conversations uh, is not quite the same as say for British India or French Algeria uh, or various Russian imperial uh, uh, spots that we might think of. So that's just I think a kind of practical problem Uh, of the Ottoman field. I mean, the other thing that we can say about the Ottoman field is it traditionally has been a little bit of a laggard uh, in terms of its theoretical uh, sophistication, right? A lot of borrowing from fields like South Asian history in recent years, I think, has been to its betterment. Um, But certainly we're a step or two behind in some respects. Uh, some other fields. And so I think that's part of this is sort of responding and inserting the Ottomans into some of these comparative conversations uh, uh, is an important uh, uh, aspect of this. Um, In terms of uh, sources, the other thing that I would uh, say is many of the the sources that I was able to access are are in some respects, they're a product of the digitization that has happened in recent years. So when I started out in the Ottoman archive, I was going in and doing keyword searches, right? Um, for example, when William Oxenwald was doing his history of, uh, of the late Ottoman Hijaz, he was reading a kind of Ottoman source code, if you will, and yet and reading page by page, a kind of digestive events. That's a very different painstaking process than being able to reconstruct with keyword searches. And so what I was able to do was to go in, find the uh, conversations that were I was finding and were happening in say foreign office materials that I'd found at Kew uh, in London or India office materials. And I was able to sort of drill down digitally in the Ottoman archive and find uh, a kind of an equivalent piece so that I could piece together both sides of the conversation. Um, and oftentimes, as, uh, you know, I, I imagine uh, is the case uh, for many of us, we find that, you know, uh, our colonial sources fib a bit, right? They're, they're not always the most, <laughs> a little bit disingenuous, right? So trying to be able to see things through either uh, more local Hijazi eyes uh, or through Istanbul's Uh, sort of gaze out on the frontier and really match that up with the story that was being told by British consular officials or officials in uh, Calcutta or Delhi or Shimla, it really does give us a a different sense of what's happening uh, on the ground. But my sort of, I guess, game plan all along was a kind of triangulation. I wanted to be able to, where I could, find uh, Ottoman archival sources, and read that against these British sources and as many Arabic sources uh, a, as possible. Uh, and then also against the Turkish secondary literature and really sort of be able to create a thicker, denser uh, kind of work. Certainly I was inspired again by this sort of uh, uh, explosion of trans-regional, international and global work, but I was always a little disappointed by it, right? Because it, it tends to Rests so much on European sources, so I wanted to do a kind of thick transregional that was rooted and and uh, had depth in area studies, you know, language training, but also had the kind of scope and scale of the global things that I was reading as well.
2: Thank you, Professor Lo. I will now pass to Philip.
0: Thanks, Archisman, um, and thank you, Professor Lo, for discussing. Uh, your work with us. Um, I have two questions and I'm going to ask, ask them separately. Um, my first um, stems from broader conversations I've had with some of our mutual colleagues, and therefore I'm not going to take full credit here. And in fact, I should really mention the names of Zosan Pelovan, um, Peter Hind, and Alistair McClure here. Um, but it's something that we've been discussing, and I think um, your work speaks to it, um, and that is the role of the state and the extension of states. Uh, apparatus in times of what we might call environmental crisis. Um, I think this is an understudied and underappreciated aspect of environmental and political historiography, but your work speaks to it. So I wonder if you could give us some wider thoughts, essentially. Um, Just just, uh, to, to pick up here, you note in chapter three, for example, that Ottoman quarantine houses in the context of cholera originally doubled as custom houses. And that later on, pilgrims were charged quarantine fees. And to my eyes, um, these appear to be extensions of state power into frontier regions um, under the guise of improving public health. You state um, further in chapter four that Ottoman plans for improving water infrastructure, quote, fit neatly into a far-reaching technocratic vision for simultaneously taming and respatializing the hijaz's environment and, and here's the crucial part, making its inhabitants. Into proper Ottoman subjects. Um, Thus, I suppose my rather broad question here is, how do you see environmental historians, such as yourself, shaping political histories of statehood in the future through lenses such as disease, public health, public works, or environmental crises?
3: So this is a great question. And I think, you know, you've picked up on uh, some really key Uh, uh, quotes to sort of pull out of of the book Um, and this sort of question of state building uh, is really central to a lot of the things that I'm trying to tease out right. Um, I think in the Ottoman case there is certainly a long uh, really an obsession uh, with notions of modernization. If you talk to any Turkish scholars they want to tell you about you know Uh, Turkish modernization, Ottoman modernization, westernization, secularization. But again, most of the time, I think that this is framed uh, a little bit more narrowly around constitutionalism, right? Uh, Or questions of a kind of post-World War I, uh, more secular state uh, under Ataturk, right? So Kemalism, And so the 19th century becomes a kind of uh, almost a kabuki theater between uh, thinking about more Islamist approaches to the state and then more secular Western uh, you know, modernist approaches to you know, boil things down to a really, really simplistic uh, kind of level. But one of the things that I wanted to show was that modernization was also infrastructural. Uh, it was also technocratic. Uh, it was technological. So where we might think about modernization in the the Tanzimat state and, you know, Ottoman constitutions, right? uh, Changing of uh, legal arrangements, which of course were important. When we look at the Hamidian era uh, from the 1870s through 1908, 1909, really sort of up through World War I, um, this sort of flowering of you know, big Ottoman plans to sort of redesign and modernize virtually everything, whether it's steamships, railroads, sewer systems, public health, uh, you name it. And so this kind of uh, uh, more material flip side, if you will, of modernization was part of what I was seeing, right? And so uh, part of the conversation is if you look at a place like uh, the Hijaz, or Yemen or Libya or Iraq, uh, the Ottoman state didn't have the resources to centralize uh, the the uh, running of the state in the same way that it would have liked to, right? The way that it did in Anatolia or in Istanbul. Um, but what I saw in the Hamidian period uh, was an effort to kind of compensate, right? You couldn't turn necessarily Bedouins into uh, quote unquote, proper Ottoman subjects overnight. You couldn't simply undo centuries of semi-autonomous rule and the kinds of bargains that you had made with various uh, local rulers uh, in order to make the state function. So the compensating mechanism oftentimes was these new technologies of statecraft. And when you bring up things like quarantine, there was certainly an eye to ways in which the Ottoman state could insert itself um, and make its presence at its borders and in its frontiers uh, much more uh, evident. The other thing that I think is really interesting about your example of the the custom house slash uh, quarantine station is that when these quarantine arrangements were being initially dreamed up under the reign of Mahmoud II in the 1830s, The point here is that they were responding, uh, the Ottomans were responding to problems with plague outbreaks and later uh, with cholera outbreaks uh, by adopting certain European ideas uh, about public health and quarantine, but they weren't doing it at that point at the behest of Europe. And in fact, there was European uh, trepidation about these new customs arrangements, right? So uh, that it was a sort of narrowing of opportunities for free trade and clearly sort of a strengthening of Ottoman border presence and surveillance, etc., right? So one of the things that the 19th century story of cholera and pilgrimage, it, it tends to present this picture of sanitary surveillance as a project of Europe, that this is this public health project to protect Europe from, uh, you know, the the, the germs and, and bad things that are floating around in colonial Asia, right? And that the Ottomans are made to make these reforms at the behest of a uh, kind of farsighted, uh, you know, technoscientific Europe. One of the things that I find is that the Ottomans, in some respects, drag British India kicking and screaming into these international public health arrangements. And in fact, it's British India uh, that's sort of the laggard on this uh, and is oftentimes disbelieving and actually outright contentious when we're talking about things like germ theory. Uh, And so the Ottomans uh, sort of, uh, they see their opportunities to take advantage uh, of uh, sort of new scientific knowledge to further the state's ends to protect itself against colonialism, but again, to sort of insinuate itself. I mean, you can use whatever uh, sort of theoretical frame uh, you like, whether you want to use a Foucauldian governmentality or a biopolitics, or a kind of seeing like uh, a state uh, to use Jim Scott's uh, uh, sort of uh, framing of things. The Ottomans clearly understood this. Now, the real question is to what extent could they act all of this out and manage it at the logistical uh, ends of this far-flung empire? That's a separate question. And I think that that's kind of the the interesting part is certainly that vision existed in, in Istanbul, but could they actually enact it and have it work properly, you know, thousands of miles away at the sort of extreme Southern frontier and in the face of lots of intransigence and extraterritorial meddling from European empires, right? So I think that's where the question really gets interesting. Not that a state wanted to do these things, but to the extent, you know, how much could they do it?
0: Thanks for that, um,
3: Professor, that's really interesting.
0: Um, My second question changes tack slightly, um, focusing on what I think is some forthcoming work. Um, Last May, I know you are planning to come to the IWC to visit us um, to present at our conference on droughts floods and rainfall anomalies in the Indian Ocean world, which unfortunately we had to cancel owing to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, Your paper was going to be entitled The Floating Kabar, Measuring the Floods of Ottoman Mecca, which I know was related to your book project. Um, Basically, without asking to give you a full rundown of this standalone paper, perhaps you could explain to listeners how this paper relates to your book, um, maybe discussing some avenues that your future publications might go down, particularly now, given your forthcoming projects um, through your um, work at NYU Abu Dhabi.
3: So this this project, this idea of the, the, the floating Kaaba or, or thinking about floods in Mecca um, is one that's appealed to me for a long time because it, it is... I think to the lay listener, it sounds a little bit paradoxical, right? Uh, Mecca is in a, one of the harshest deserts one could think of. We don't think of uh, rain and flood when we think about uh, uh, Mecca or, or Saudi Arabia. Um, but despite the you know uh, extreme aridity uh, of this region, when you do have rainfall, you have significant down pur- uh, downbursts um, and an inability of the soil to absorb. And of course, These are, you know, pre 20th century development arrangements, right? So uh, flooding was a kind of perennial problem uh, for Mecca. And it came into my book research uh, in a couple of ways. Uh, So I was obviously looking for material on cholera and would find cholera, typhoid, uh, uh, potential for sort of, uh, uh, you know, kind of overlapping environmental and epidemiological uh, catastrophe uh, every so many years uh, in Mecca. And I found this uh, lithograph or engraving uh, in a kind of uh, collected volume by a gentleman named Ayub Sabri Pasha. He was a, a naval officer and a kind of amateur historian of the Arabian Peninsula. And he had this picture in his three-volume uh, sort of the mirror of the two holy places. And it showed literally the Kaaba, the black cube in, in the sort of grand mosque in Mecca, floating, almost looked like it was a sort of surrounded by a lake. And this got me thinking, Uh, you know, I I had all of this material on kind of uh, water infrastructures of Mecca so that I could sort of describe the the cholera era and some of these modernization projects uh, in the late 19th century. But of course, the Kaaba had been destroyed by floods on a number of occasions. Uh, And you, you know, every so many years would see uh, Ottoman records about either floods or, uh, you know, having to send aid for homeless uh, people, people lacking food uh, around the the holy places, right, because of uh, flood activity. And so one of the things I wanted to do, especially because of our appraising risk project, is to kind of expand this idea out. I had some nice anecdotal work for the 19th century, but to really go and look at the historical flood record uh, for Mecca uh, in a more long durée uh, uh, kind of way, and to really kind of think about how that shaped uh, sort of the history of pilgrimage, but also the sort of local history of Mecca and the Hijaz. And it seemed like a really kind of perfect tie-in uh, with the appraising risk project. Um, alas, uh, this has sort of been put on hold for the time being, right? Just uh, because of COVID. Um, but it certainly fits in with my uh, my next book project, uh, which is really focused on. Uh, history of water in the Arabian Peninsula, and in particular uh, the history of desalination technology as sort of uh, an alternative way to think about the history of the region that uh, sort of displaces oil production as the sort of uh, key lens, but to really think about the sort of fantastical uh, development in places like Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or Abu Dhabi and Dubai through the lens of the manufacturing of water and really the idea of kind of drinking the sea, if you will, uh, through the processing of of fossil fuels to sort of magically uh, make potable water.
0: Wonderful. That sounds really interesting, Professor Lowe. Thank you very much for answering that. Um, I'll now pass back to Renee to wrap up.
1: Thank you, Philip. And um, thank you so much, Professor Lowe, for answering all of our questions and for presenting your research. I know I can speak for all of us by saying that it was a pleasure to have you. And we were all very, very interested and excited to see your upcoming work. Uh, We're also wishing you a great luck, great luck with your book, especially because it has just been published and a huge congratulations on that as well. Um, So listeners, please recommend it to a library near you. Um, Thank you to both of our postdoctoral fellows, Philip and Archisman, for their questions today. And of course, thank you to you, our audience, for downloading and listening today. Once again, my name is Renee Manderville and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast.
3: The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk, Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding
0: of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.